up this is uh you know that negative thought you've been having and uh, i just uh i just can't let you try and change yourself without a fight so uh go ahead and just turn this show off okay and um uh yeah everything's still fine this is blindsight with your host bill lundgren an aink original podcast we're not holding back truth we're here to help you heal and become the best you possible here's the chair here's the pillow here's bill So, out of all of that, uh, no, you got out and, ne- and everything was fine, and uh, no more, no more attention to men- mental uh, illness issues, right? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one of the nurses said it better. She was like, on one of my final days there, she said, "You know, the real work starts when you get home," and that's so true because you're all of a sudden back in the environment that I I sort of equated it to her like and I don't I don't know if this is completely accurate but sort of like an addict wanting to use and mm-hmm. you know you take them out of their f- familiar environment you might break some of those habits and help them with better thinking but when they're back in that environment where they used before or in my case where I had suicidal thoughts all the time and was planning to die, then that gets a lot harder and the voices of the nurses kind of fade in your head and you only have you to be able to to keep you safe. And that's that's hard. What did you need from your family when you got out? And did they were you know, did they know how to respond? That's a really good question for a lot of people. I think it was awkward. I think they didn't know what to do or say. So sometimes they wanted to do too much. They wanted to always be there when I kind of needed space or they just, others just had no idea what to say. I think probably the most frustrating thing that people would say was like, oh, but okay, you're out of the hospital now. You're, you're all better now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you for assuming that. But no, I didn't go in to like have a, broken arm repaired or something like that it's it's a little bit more ongoing i guess than that mm-hmm. well looking back on you know this this time that you talk about as a teenager coming up to the hospital how do you think uh those around you could have made a difference and how did and what did they finally do after you were out that made a difference for you? Were they two different things, or was it the, the same thing you needed from them both times? Hmm. Wow. Um. I think that. Hmm. It was so overwhelming for them. I think again, like we talked about earlier the early intervention would have been really critical for me. And I did get it to a point. Um, I was in therapy. I had a social worker who was really great in junior high. Um, but when she moved away, I was like, well, I don't want to see anybody else. So it was, it was partially me too, mm-hmm. because I'd built that rapport with her but in terms of my family, I think for them, 
And, and they did a lot right. I'm not saying that they didn't, but I think again, that, that stigma, that discomfort. That's right. To even talk about it. If we don't talk about it, it'll go away. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe because like when I came out of the hospital, because people knew about it, because I was fairly open about it fairly soon afterwards. So people did find out, um, because I chose to share my story, I think that also helped my family and my loved ones to feel more comfortable talking about it with me. Um, you know, they were aware, a couple of them were aware of my safety plan that had been made. And sometimes, so now they will notice that I'm spiraling sometimes even before I do. Oh, really? And I think it's mm-hmm. so critical to catch that spiral right as it stops before it just picks up steam and there's nothing left that you can do. I think there's so many things that you can do if you catch it soon enough. And unfortunately that just seems to come with experience and with the knowledge of like, okay, these are the triggers. These are the early signs. So sometimes, yeah, they will catch it even before I do and be like, Hey, do you, do you think you're spiraling? Do you think you need to do something differently? Well, I think the, what you're saying is that you changed and you gave them permission to pay attention and made it less frightening yeah. because you weren't, uh, you had come to some resolution with it. So it's kind of a combined thing. They needed to be, needed to be taught by you as to what, you know, that it was okay to talk about mental illness. Uh, Talk about, as you say, spiraling and point out something that you weren't frightened of, of it anymore. It's, would that be accurate? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, my comfort around it helped with their comfort around it before then because I wanted to get away with it because I didn't want to be interrupted. I was more secretive, I guess. I wasn't oh, like mm-hmm. I. I think I did things that if people really knew what to look for, like with my aunt, with the ER doctor, they would have seen. But I think there's a lot of like misinformation even still around what that looks like. And sometimes you feel like you're sending out all these signals and it's it's so hard to say to somebody, I need help. So you're sending all these signals and nobody picks up Mm -hmm, on it. mm -hmm. And it's probably the toughest thing to say, I need help, because somehow we feel yes. weaker when we ask for help and really takes a lot of strength to say, I need help. Absolutely. And to go for it and to, uh, you know, the idea of even going to a therapist is just so scary for so many people. It's, oh, I'm not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think people think that by the time you get to a therapist, you're you're seriously mentally ill. And I think that's really unfortunate. And I think that would be something I would love to see changed, you know, that it's no different than going to your family doctor. If you have like a, a little medical concern or whatever, or even having like a, a annual checkup. Right. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice if, it, uh, if we were just yeah. un- uniformly getting a, a, a mental health checkup? They say, look. Yeah, and it was no more, yeah, it was no bigger deal. Right, than, right. Yeah. So what you, 
what I'm seeing is that you've taken this experience and using it with the same kind of empathy that you showed in in uh, your moment of crisis for the family of the person who is Code Blue. And for those who don't know Code Blue, what does that mean? So it's basically when somebody is in acute distress, I think usually their respiration has stopped and they need immediate, immediate mental me- medical intervention to be able to survive. And that's not guaranteed by that point. And so what you've been doing is helping people uh, by sharing your experience and helping them to understand is it I don't want to say it's no big deal. It's something that needs to be attended to, but just should not, and I hate to use the word should, but I'll say the shame is what needs to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's not going to be an easy process. I never want to mislead people in that way because it's not, you know, in the same way that my my aunt told me what was really going to happen. I want to be straight with people, but I want to tell them that they can get through it and that it will prove to them that they are so much stronger than they thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you demonstrate your strength both during or when the, the moment happened and uh, now in terms of just trying to undo the kind of stigma that's uh, attached to mental health. For sure. And some of it is selfish, for sure, because I find that that gives me a purpose. And I think without a purpose, I was so lost. That's a biggie. Did some of that go uh, come out in your music as well as your book? Some of the, like, the mental health things or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the strength that you have. Yeah, I think so. Like the album that came out um i guess about a year ago now really my book's called holding on by letting go and my friends all kind of joked that the album should have been called holding on by letting go the musical because it really (laughs) sort of delves into the same things that i talk about in the book and shares my Mm -hmm. experience going through that in a musical form as well well can you tell tell us a little bit about your book For sure. So it's sort of starts with this prologue of me in the hospital that night of the code blue, just sort of reflecting on, like, I don't know the exact moment where this all started, but it's been such a, such a perfect storm of circumstances to lead me to this hospital bed. And then it, it goes back in time and there's kind of these two parallel themes, one of them being my life as a blind person growing up and the other being my struggles with mental health and and how that sort of developed alongside me as I grew up. And so it, it really seeks to answer the first half of the book really seeks to answer the question, how did this happen? Because that was a question I got so much when I got out of the hospital. People were like, well, you, you're so happy. How did this happen? Mm. So it really tried to go back in time and really show how somebody, you know, yeah, I had a loved, I had loved ones. I had, 
you know, things going for me. And I still ended up at that point. So really trying to explain to people how that happened. And then part two of the book is basically in journal format from my first day in the hospital until when I got released, just sharing what that was like, sharing, trying to dispel some of those misconceptions about what actually goes on behind those locked doors. And yeah, just really trying to even share, you know, my conversations in therapy and things like that in the hopes that it might help somebody else to feel more comfortable in seeking the help and the treatment they need. Well, as a blind person, is there something that uh, therapists ought to pay attention to besides the fact of uh, poo-pooing or minimizing the uh, uh, the pain that you were in uh, that therapists, institutions, uh, people need to know in order to be more effective in working with someone who, uh, like you, who's blind and dealing with uh, uh, a mental illness. Yeah, I think a big thing is they're thinking about blindness as the cause. And I think it's more the factors of blindness that are some of the factors in that situation, why that person or why I was seeking support. So, you know, it's not so much, I think sighted people often think, oh, it's, it's because they're depressed because they don't see the sunset or their loved one's faces. When a lot of it, the factors that go into it are more, you know, sometimes the social social isolation of being blind, sometimes the discrimination that we face, um, the difficulties in employment, things like that, I think are much bigger factors than, oh, you can't see the sunset. So of course you're depressed, but I think those Mm -hmm. factors are often ignored. But I wonder as I'm listening to you uh, thinking, and I guess I'm I'm drawing from my, my own experience, there is an expectation that we have to perform, uh, at, you know, with our blindness. We're supposed to mask, and, and we may even be trained to mask some of our feelings uh, so people don't feel sorry for us as blind people. And then that yeah. can be in a lot of other areas of our lives to kind of heat, hide that part of us from the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that's so true. And for me, also growing up on the stage, but having severe social anxiety, I learned not only through blindness, but also through music. And I guess those things kind of worked together against me that the number one thing you can't do is show anybody you're afraid. Oh, mm-hmm. Or or you're troubled about something because uh, that's not okay. It it bums other people out. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, we want people to think of blind people as fully capable. And we don't want to, you know, we're often perceived as society as maybe weaker than other able-bodied people. And we can't afford to let any more weakness show than what they already think. I found that was like a big part of it for me. So I got really obsessed with perfection. Like every time I left my house, I had to be 100% 
on all the time and I couldn't make a mistake. If I made a mistake, I would beat myself up about it for mm. months. Yeah. So part of what you had to learn through therapy and whatever is to accept yourself as you are rather than constantly measuring yourself against some perfection. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And I remember a psychiatrist saying to me at the time, maybe part of your journey can be accepting that you're in a place or in a moment to show somebody else how to overcome. And at first I was really mad because I was like, that's not, I, I never asked to be anybody's inspiration. So I think for me, I kind of had to come to the point of understanding and realizing no matter what I do, no matter if I'm the best, most capable, most confident blind person ever, there's going to be people out there who minimize it, who minimize my accomplishments, who think, you know, oh, she's so inspirational just because she's blind, and I can't control that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it feels like, uh, oh, you know, you're up there, you're being worshipped because you're so together and whatever, and it's like, uh, uh, it makes me a little nauseous, but I don't know how it affects you when people start <laughs> doing that. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so, it was such a part of like, it was so bringing me down and I was so obsessed with trying to change people's perceptions that it was costing me dearly in terms of my mental health. So he kind of frustratingly, I guess at the time, but sort of <laughs> told me, you know, you don't get to control that and you can't let it control, you can't let other people's perceptions of your blindness control you because you can't change it. Mm, good point. Good point. Yeah, we really don't have that much control over what people think. They, they no. think we have only control over our thinking. Yeah, exactly. So I had to learn to let that go because no matter what I did, some people were going to view me as less than. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that we all we can do is just have unconditional acceptance of ourselves which doesn't mean we don't try to be better it just means that we accept where we are which is yeah. which is we're not trained to do no no definitely not and it was something that was so difficult for me to realize that that was such a huge part of what was keeping me stuck was other Per other people's perceptions of me and trying to be perfect so that people wouldn't see me as weaker or an inspiration or, you know, whatever. I agree with you. That kind of makes me sick. But I kind of had to realize that I can't fight those fights. I can better myself, but I can't fix what other people are going to think. Is your book in audio format? It is, yeah. And how did some, how did one, uh, is it in the bookstore or how did one obtain a copy? Yeah. So it's on Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, Audible has the audiobook pretty much anywhere online where oh, you good. buy books in print, ebook or audiobook. Plan for more recordings? More recordings? More I hope so. I'm not really doing a ton of that right now. I've kind of been in, the middle of a lot of things and <laughs> trying to feeling like I'm kind of pulled in 50 different directions right now, which is not very 
helpful for songwriting, I guess, because you're just kind of trying to like get through everything that you need to get through. So I have like Mm. 50 unfinished songs and I, I want to get back into the studio. I really want to finish them, but I need to sort of clear some of the other stuff that I've been working on and really sit down and make that a priority because I haven't been lately. Yeah. That your creative views is, uh, is saying, Hey, pay attention. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I think sometimes when we're like so much of even going through COVID people were like, Oh, but you have all this time to write. And a lot of creative people, myself included, were like, we can't write. We're just trying to get through the day. Yeah, right, 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 right. Well, Heather, I'm so appreciative of you being on and also you so your much. your leadership in, in advocacy and helping to destigmatize. And I know that that's a full-time operation in and of itself. Yeah, it's a lot of work. and It's a lot you know, of it, work, yeah. It's overwhelming because you change one person's mind. And then I think especially for me on social media, one person is like, oh, this really helped me to understand better. And then you get 50 comments of people just saying like ignorant things. And it's like, oh, you clearly didn't learn anything. So it's really overwhelming, but we have to keep oh, on yeah. fighting the good fight, I guess. <laughs> So, in other words, people can contact you through uh, social media and, uh, uh, you know, uh, re- let you know what they think? Absolutely, yeah. Ooh, that can be dangerous. <laughs> it is really dangerous. It's really hard because sometimes, like, there was a couple of weeks ago that I was at um, a memorial for somebody that was really difficult and emotional and I didn't check my phone for a couple hours and then you know after that emotional day I checked my phone and there were literally like hundreds of hate comments posted on this one video that I had made and so it really depends on like my mindset in any given day sometimes I just have to like walk away from it and I'm like I can't engage Mm -hmm, with social mm -hmm. media right now for my mental health good Good. Uh, I'd like everyone to listen to that because that that can be a dangerous thing. And uh, one of the things that I'm experiencing as I talk to you is uh, your strength. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's it's a work in progress, but I yeah, like to think it'll be that... a work in progress. But uh, the you have gone through a lot. Your strength in being able to share what you've been through. Uh, can give a lot of strength to to other people, and uh, and as you say, to have purpose, to bring purpose to your life as well as to let people know uh, that they can have purpose in their lives. It may be different from yours, but you know that's the 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 message. And I'm not going to say inspirational. I'm going to say that just a reminder that yeah, we can we can all all get better. The stigma around mental illness is just that and needs to be removed. And we begin to see it, you know, as something that happens and that uh, we can we can work through it with yeah. a little help from our friend, as the Beatles would say. But uh, thank you for being on the program. 
Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Our pleasure. This is Bill Lundgren, uh, your host of Blindsight. And what is the title of your of your book again? It's it's called Holding On by Letting Go. And we've been very fortunate to have Heather on our show today. And we hope that maybe we can, uh, uh, when your next record comes out, we'll just say, hey, how about coming back on the show? That'd uh, be great. We wish you the best and thank you. Thank you so much. And we wish the best to all our listeners. Thank you for participating. If uh, thoughts of suicide are, uh, if you're having them, don't hesitate to either go to your emergency room or to talk to someone and let them know how you're feeling. Uh, the uh, call number uh, 988 is available 24-7 for people in crises. Uh, there's no reason you have to continue to put up with the pain that you may be feeling. Uh, it'll be painful afterwards, but at least you know that you is a sign of getting better. So uh, for all of us here at the Audio Information Network of Colorado, I bid all of you uh, goodbye and tune in for our next episode. Thank you.